0: The Christmas and holiday season is upon us, and when it comes to sports, many associate it with the football season ending and attention shifting to basketball or hockey, or both. Christmas Day basketball games have been a long tradition for the NBA starting in 1947, the league's second season. The first ever Christmas Day game was between the New York Knickerbockers and the now defunct Providence Steamrollers. The Knicks won in front of a Christmas Day crowd of 15,000 at the old Madison Square Garden. Well, one of the old ones, the third one, and predecessor to the current garden. Also, the league was then known as the Basketball Association of America, but would become the NBA two seasons later. A great topic for another day. Back to Christmas, when we get the occasional weekend or Monday holiday – then we get the trifecta of Christmas celebrations, basketball games, and football too. The NHL used to play on Christmas as well. In 1919, the league's third season, the Montreal Canadiens played the now-defunct Quebec Bulldogs to open the season on Christmas Day. The Canadiens won 12-5. After 1971, though, the league stopped scheduling Christmas Day games and even started giving the players a three-day holiday break. And for the NFL, in the very early days, the league championship games were many times played on Christmas weekend, never on the day of, though. Also, some of the best Christmas presents Browns fans may have ever received were the result of their four NFL championships being won within a day or two of Christmas, similar for Lions fans as well with three of their four championships. As for college football, well, that's after Christmas, so we'll get there later this episode. Some gatherings of family or friends will even play a game amongst themselves, like Turkey Bowl football games that have been popular for generations, though usually played on or around Thanksgiving rather than Christmas. Either way, it's believed that the first-ever Turkey Bowl game was played in 1869 in Germantown, Philadelphia, only a few weeks after the first recorded intercollegiate football game was played between Princeton and Rutgers. Find out more on that game and all about the birth of American football in the most recent episode of the Sports Ball Nerd. Most gatherings of family and friends, however, choose a game with a bit less physical contact and exertion. While parlor games may not be considered sports in themselves, they do usually involve a level of competition and potentially even skill to achieve victory, like in sports. And if your family is anything like mine, they can be full of drama as well. So as a special holiday edition of the Sports Ball Nerd, let's look at some popular games that have been played throughout history around the Christmas and holiday season. And then, as previously promised in the first episode, a bit of a more in-depth look at the history of college bowl games. But first, games played around the holidays throughout history. Some of which, like football, I should probably say ahead of time, do not attempt these yourself, or at least without the supervision of a responsible adult. Like the first one, despite seeming similar to a game played at parties by children just a generation ago. Now, the spread of germs is better understood, and bobbing for apples seems a bit less hygienic than we previously thought. But in the 16th century, germs were the least of their worries in the game of Snapdragon. To play, people, generally children, gathered around a wide, shallow bowl on Christmas Eve. Warm brandy was placed in a bowl along with some raisins, and the whole thing was set on fire. The goal of the game, if you call it that, to snatch the flaming raisins from the burning bowl of brandy and extinguish them by eating them. There were no points, and no winners or losers were declared, though it's likely the winner was the one who got burned the least, or looked the least foolish or maybe the opposite. Either way, this game was played in England, Canada, and the U.S. until the early to mid-20th century, with even a few variations. One account of the game, from a 1978 article in the Winston-Salem, North Carolina newspaper, The Sentinel, added a real reward to be won in the game. In this variation, nickels and dimes were put on the bottom of the bowl, and the children tried to get the money without getting singed. Afterward, everyone ate the raisins there was also the similarly named and themed game Flap Dragon, though this one was mostly just a Christmas drinking game. In it, a burning candle was placed in a tankard of ale, and the goal was to drink it without getting burned. That's it. Even if you lose, you win. Now, for a little less alcohol and flames involved, maybe, there was a popular Christmas Eve game of questions and commands. As you probably guessed from the sound of it, This was an early version of Truth or Dare. This game made its first appearance in the early 18th century. As defined by British lexicographer E. Cobham Brewer, that's a dictionary maker, by the way, it was a Christmas game in which the commander bids their subjects to answer a question which is asked. If the subject refuses or fails to satisfy the commander, they must pay a forfeit, essentially follow a command, or have their face smutted basically have dirt thrown in it. So, no dares, and it may not have even been the origin place of Truth or Dare anyways, as some may point to an ancient Greek game for that, and that has nothing to do with Christmas. For an example of a Christmas game with maybe a bit more skill, we have an old game called Steal the White Loaf. This game was comparable to the modern game of Red Light, Green Light, A chunk of bread, or cake, was placed on a table and a designated person sat facing away from the table, while others tried to steal the loaf without getting caught or identified. If caught, that person was now it. A simple game, no burns, no punches in the face. Unlike the next game, Blind Man's Buff. In this, and other similar games, because of course there was also an ancient Greek variation, one player was designated it, was blindfolded or put on a mask, and basically just felt around trying to catch one of the other players. Kind of like the modern game of Marco Polo, but not in a pool. Pushing and verbal distractions were employed to avoid being caught, and according to accounts of the game from the Middle Ages, it could get pretty violent back then. Like some of our favorite sports today. That was also during a time when the 12 days of Christmas were observed. A Tudor Christmas. And the day of games and sports was generally the seventh day of Christmas, which fell on New Year's Eve, with Christmas Day being the first. On this day, children played games like Blind Man's Buff or Hide and Seek, while the adults took part in gambling and sporting games. However, due to King Henry VIII's Unlawful Games Act of 1541, there were very few games and sporting activities that people were even allowed to engage in. And Christmas was one of the only days some of those gambling games were even allowed, The one sporting activity that was universally allowed under the act, however, was archery, and not because Robin Hood has been referred to as a medieval Santa Claus. The reality, it was law that men practiced archery every week after church as part of the national defense. So as a result, archery contests on the seventh day of Christmas were also popular as they were one of the few sporting activities that were allowed and people were proficient at. We have come a long way since then. And no list of holiday-themed games would be complete without the dreidel game, played during the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, another game with possible origins dating back to the ancient Greeks or Romans or possibly the Babylonians, and others have pointed to India. Some scholars, seeking a Jewish origin, even point to the Maccabees in the 2nd century BC. It's believed they used the game as a diversionary effort to circumvent the Greek decrees on studying the Torah. Others point to the 16th century and the rise in popularity of teetotum games in England and Ireland. A teetotum is a spinning top with marked sides, like a dreidel. And when these games arrived in Germany, it became popular among Jewish children, giving rise to the holiday pastime. Either way, the game generally involves a multi-sided top inscribed with letters or symbols, Players gather around with a collection of 10 to 15 game pieces, which can be anything from candies to coins. Players then take turns spinning the dreidel, and depending on which side lands facing up, they either take or add pieces to a main pot in the middle. When a player runs out of pieces, they are either out of the game, or must take a loan from another player. This game, unlike previously mentioned varieties of past holiday games, is one that people still play today. Other popular games chosen today by gatherings of family and friends are many times games involving a deck of playing cards. Games like Rummy, Euchre, Egyptian Rat Screw, and others. But did you know that playing cards likely originated in 9th century China? It's believed that from there they spread throughout the Asian continent and into Egypt by the 11th century. From there, the earliest reports of playing cards arriving in Europe from Egypt are in the late 14th century, and then France only a few years later. Which is important, because the standard 52-card deck we know today is considered a French-suited deck of cards, and the pattern was originally known as the Paris Pattern. A few other European countries, like Germany, had similar designs, but it was the Paris Pattern that was exported to Britain in the late 15th century, and by the late 16th century, Britain was making their own cards, modeled after the Paris design with its own changes, evolving it into the English pattern we know now. By the late 19th century, the designs we recognize had spread across the globe. In America, we made the cards bigger. Some of those previously mentioned games, like Euchre and Rummy, were created in that early to mid-19th century period, during the spread of popularity in the 52-card French suited deck, Poker, another card game with its origins during that time, is also now played at Christmas gatherings and even has a World Series that has been broadcast on sports and entertainment channels for decades. Now, there are countless options for games that families and friends enjoy on Christmas, anything from those old-time card games to throwing stuffed burritos at each other. And I do highly recommend that one, just not with protective dogs around. Then after the Christmas and other holiday celebrations are over, and all the games played, we get back to sports to finish out the year with some of the best college football of the season. The bowl games, the playoff games, and the national championship game. The history of the latter can be found as part of the first episode of the Sportsball Nerd. As for the bowl games, the first of those was played on January 1, 1902, between Michigan State and Stanford at Tournament Park in Pasadena, California. It was the first-ever postseason college football game. Unfortunately, it was not much of a thriller with MSU winning 49-0. At the time, it was referred to as the Tournament East-West Football Game. It was and still is hosted by the Pasadena Tournament of Roses Association, the first game was a way to help fund the New Year's Day Rose Parade, also held annually by the association since 1890. The 1902 game was just a one-off game at the time, but returned in 1916 to become an annual game, and was renamed the Rose Bowl when the Rose Bowl Stadium itself opened on January 1, 1923. That was the first, and for the most part, the only bowl game until the 1930s but there were a few one-offs in that time. The Bacardi Bowl was one of those. It was first played in 1907, again in 09, and then after both the 1911 and 12 seasons. It was played again one time in each decade to follow and was generally just a not-yet-SEC team playing against Cuban universities and athletic clubs, like the 1912 game between Florida and the Vidado Tennis Club though the 1937 matchup did see Auburn face Villanova in a 7-7 tie on New Year's Day. The Fort Worth Classic was the next now-defunct one-off bowl game in 1920, followed by the Dixie Classic in 21, though this bowl would see two more games before essentially becoming the Cotton Bowl in the 30s. The 1920s also saw one-off games like the San Diego East-West Christmas Classic in 1920 and 21, and the Los Angeles Christmas Festival in 1924. College All-Star Games also saw their beginning in the 20s with the East-West Shrine Bowl, which was first played on the day after Christmas in 1925. That game is still played today, though mostly towards the end of January now. But throughout the 1930s and 40s, the game was regularly played on New Year's Day, and for many decades, either within a week of Christmas or New Year's. The 1930s then saw the Sugar Bowl, Orange Bowl, and Sun Bowl all start in 1935, and the Cotton Bowl in 37. All are still active major bowl games. There were a few other now-defunct All-Star games, but no other now-defunct bowl games arose during that decade, so the only other bowl games were the Rose Bowl and the previously mentioned bowls that had a one-off game in the 30s. World War II resulted in an understandable stagnation and growth, and some games not even taking place. But the late 1940s saw an explosion in the expansion of bowl games, though most are now defunct. The Gator and Citrus Bowls do still exist, and were first played in 1945 and 46, respectively. But as mentioned, there were quite a few other now-defunct bowls, like the original Alamo Bowl, the Delta Bowl, the Dixie Bowl, the Great Lakes Bowl, the Harbor Bowl, the Corn Bowl, the Oil Bowl, the Salad Bowl, the Raisin Bowl, and the Shrine Bowl. Many of those never saw more than a year or two of games, and six of those were created for the 1947 season, after the success of the Gator and Citrus Bowls. That decade also saw another over two dozen now-defunct bowl games considered to be minor or unofficial, so really an explosion in growth, all of which happened immediately following the end of World War II, which, looking at U.S. history, was the start of an economic boom and a major growth in both mass consumerism and brand loyalty. So, while new brands of snack foods and home products were popping up, so were new bowl games. They were new brands, attempting to cash in like the predecessors had, like everyone else was doing in that era. The original bowl games were essentially festivals, but also economic boons for the cities holding them. Initially, the Rose Bowl was a fundraising event for the Rose Parade, and over the years has brought in a lot of money for the city of Pasadena. The idea that later became the Orange Bowl in 1935 was originally the Fiesta of the American Tropics, and then the Palm Festival, always with the idea of having a bowl game to go along with those an idea by Miami City leaders to model after the Rose Bowl's success. For the Sugar Bowl, also started in 1935, the city leaders in New Orleans essentially wanted a big game with all the benefits that came with it for the city. Then the Sun Bowl, the last of the three first played in 1935, started as a fundraiser for a local service club. Despite the inaugural game being played between two Texas high schools, it has been a major College Bowl game since. And the Cotton Bowl, also from the 30s, was the idea of an oil tycoon who financed the whole game for the first few seasons. Now, any good business person would tell you, if you're financing something like that, you're doing it to make money. And the Cotton Bowl would go on to make a lot of money as one of the biggest bowl games of the college season. So, the 40s only saw two survivors, Gator and Citrus, of the Brand Wars to go along with the already established bowls. After the brand wars of the late 1940s, the next decade only saw a handful of attempts to create a new bowl game. Only the Liberty Bowl remains as a major bowl game from that decade, and it was first played in 1959. Though, the Blue Bonnet Bowl did also first play in 1959, and survived until 1987, regularly featuring ranked foes. But the first round of Brand Wars was over, and it wasn't until the late 1960s and the following decade that we saw another small round of expansion. First, the Peach Bowl in 1968, and then the Fiesta Bowl in 71. Those two, of course, are now part of the college football playoff, along with most of the other oldest bowl games. The mid-70s would then see the Independence Bowl in 76, and Holiday Bowl in 78, and like other periods of bowl game growth, that time also saw the creation of a few more now-defunct bowls continuing through the mid-80s. But that is when everything changed. The first domino to fall was when the Gator Bowl and Fiesta Bowl took corporate sponsors in 1986, and became the Mazda Gator Bowl and SunKissed Fiesta Bowl respectively. The following year, the Sun Bowl became the John Hancock Bowl. It has since returned to the original name and is now the Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl. The Sugar Bowl became the USF&G Sugar Bowl in 1988, and both the Orange Bowl and Cotton Bowl became the FedEx Orange Bowl and Mobile Cotton Bowl in 1989. This is also when corporate entities took charge in finally having a national championship game, or at least attempting to do so, without the NCAA's endorsement, of course. For more on that, check out the first episode in this season. Then the 90s and beyond saw new bowl games created and then repurposed by just about every corporate sponsor imaginable, like the Blockbuster Bowl from 1990 that is now the Pop-Tarts Bowl and was previously the Cheez-Its Bowl, the Champs Sports Bowl, and half a dozen more. The Rose Bowl was one of the last of the original major bowls to agree to corporate sponsorship. That happened in 1999, the year after the start of the BCS. Now, one last interesting piece of historic information, and of slight importance. Back in 1917, the Rose Bowl began always selecting a team from the Pacific Coast Conference, the PCC, and predecessor of the current Pac-12. Then in 1946, the Big Nine, an old name for the Big Ten, agreed to a deal with the Rose Bowl to send their conference champion to play the champion of the PCC. The first was the 1947 Rose Bowl. And prior to that, the Southwest Conference, what essentially became the Big 12 in 1995, was tied to the Cotton Bowl as early as 1941, and the Sugar Bowl traditionally hosted the SEC champions starting back in 1935, which was made a formal agreement in 1975. These ties also involved, and still do, financial arrangements in payouts and revenue splitting for the conferences and schools playing in them. Of course, that all made having some sort of national championship game a difficult proposition throughout the years. So instead, we have a fairly cloudy history of who won what when it comes to the college football national championship. Again, more on that in episode one. Either way, we now have 43 bowl games playing this season. Six of those are part of the New Year's Six, which are also part of the playoffs and national championship games all of which makes for a thrilling end to both the college football and holiday seasons. And with that, I bid you all Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Joyful Holidays, and Happy New Year.